listening to the Douglas Jacoby Podcast. Here we bring you some of the material found on Douglas's website in podcast form. We hope that as you listen today, you are challenged to think about faith. In this episode, Douglas is continuing his series on Old Testament characters, now looking at the life of Phineas. For more on this episode, follow the link in the show notes to Douglas's website. Now here's today's teaching. Old Testament Premium Podcast number 18 on Phineas. Greetings from Atlanta, Georgia, our home. I'll actually be flying down to Jacksonville, Florida, where my mother lives. But I wanted to get this podcast out before I went away. I hope you're enjoying these lessons. If you are, please tell your friends. This helps to support the teaching ministry. In 2008, I was able to visit 25 nations and give away more than $10,000 in teaching materials and answer several thousand Bible questions through daily correspondence. So your help really is appreciated. And if you'll tell your friends, this directly helps the teaching ministry. Well, our last podcast was also from the book of Numbers. In fact, we studied mainly Numbers 22 to 24. Today, we just happen to be at Numbers 25, the principal passage on this colorful Old Testament character of Phineas. As always, you'll learn a little bit about the original Hebrew. As you look into the notes, you can learn the interesting meanings of Phinehas and uh, some of the other key words that appear in this account, and particularly the Hebrew word for jealousy and the Greek word for jealousy. These are very important for understanding the theological point of the passage. Um, Before we start reading for Numbers 25, I'd like to read from the Tyndale Commentary series just a paragraph about the incident involving uh, Phineas in Numbers 25, which I, I think is just put so well. The Bible startles its readers by the way it juxtaposes the brightest of revelations and the darkest of sins. The law-giving at Sinai was followed by the making of the golden calf, Exodus 20 to 32. The ordination of Aaron by the disobedience of his sons, Leviticus 8 to 10. The covenant with David by the Bathsheba affair, 2 Samuel 7 to 12. Palm Sunday by Good Friday. Here we have another classic example of this pattern. The wonderful prophecies of Balaam are succeeded by the great apostasy at Peor. In this way, Scripture tries to bring home to us the full wonder of God's grace in face of man's incorrigible propensity to sin. Don't let anyone tell you that the Old Testament is simply about rules and law and the New Testament is about following the Spirit and being saved by grace. That is utter nonsense. Every book of the Old Testament is literally dripping with grace from Genesis on. Let me read that last sentence again from the Tyndale Commentary. In this way, Scripture tries to bring home to us the full wonder of God's grace in face of man's incorrigible propensity to sin. And now to our text. And today I'll be reading from the New King James Version. Numbers 25. Now Israel remained in Acacia Grove, and the people began to commit harlotry with the women of Moab. They invited the people to the sacrifices of their gods, 
And the people ate and bowed down to their gods. So Israel was joined, or yoked, to Baal of Peor. And the anger of the Lord was aroused against Israel. As a normal, I'll be punctuating the text with, with some comments. Uh, for some readers, you will have noticed that the place says Acacia Grove. This is simply translating the Hebrew word Shittim. There were moral and spiritual compromises involving Moab. In a sense, by falling morally, Israel was enacting, self-enacting, the very curse that Balaam refused to pronounce on them in the first place. In the previous chapter, Balaam refused to curse them. And here are the people of God cursing themselves through this unholy alliance with the people and the gods of Moab. Verse 3 said, Israel was yoked to the Baal of Peor, or joined. This is that illicit yoking about which we receive so many warnings in Scripture. For often, sacrificial meals involving idolatry also include prostitution. And so this is Exodus 32 all over again. God is angry against sin. This is not an irrational or immature reaction like most human anger. It is the inevitable and natural reaction of God's holy nature against sin. Just as water evaporates immediately in the presence of extreme heat, so human sin cannot coexist in the holy presence of God. We continue. Then the Lord said to Moses, Take all the leaders of the people and hang the offenders before the Lord out in the sun, that the fierce anger of the Lord may turn from Israel. So Moses said to the judges of Israel, Every one of you kill his men who are joined to Baal of Peor. This is an extreme sentence. What was going to happen, presumably, the offenders would have been stoned because that was the penalty for blasphemy. Then afterwards, their bodies would be exposed in the sun as an example. Whoa! The buck stops with the leaders. I don't read this passage to say that every leader took part in this apostasy, but many did. We continue. And indeed, one of the children of Israel came and presented to his brethren a Midianite woman in the sight of Moses and in the sight of all the congregation of the children of Israel who were weeping at the door of the tabernacle of meeting. Here, many in, nation, in the nation of Israel are grieved. They're weeping because of the apostasy on a national level. What a shocking juxtaposition. They're grieving over the son of Israel. And then one of the Israelites comes with a Midianite woman, possibly his wife, according to some commentators. And they're going to get involved sexually they walk right past Moses. Mourning and sin. James chapter 4 shows the appropriate response, what should have been done. And this is the exact opposite. Won't anyone take a stand for what is right? Verse 7. Now when Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, the son of Aaron, the priest, saw it, he rose from the congregation and took a javelin in his hand. And he went after the man of Israel into the tent. 
and thrust both of them through, the man of Israel and the woman through her body. So the plague was stopped among the children of Israel, and those who died in the plague were 24,000. Phineas takes a stand. Phineas is the grandson of Aaron, the son of Eleazar. And he takes a spear, he takes a javelin, and he goes right into the tent or the shrine. The Hebrew word kubah could refer to an inner room or shrine. There's a, a similar word in Arabic that means camp sanctuary. So this seems to be a cultic act. It seems that the man and woman are having intercourse, but it's involved with the worship of Moab. It's not just something casual. Phineas runs them both through in the act, one thrust of the javelin through both bodies. This may be shocking to us, but it's no more shocking, I think, than the destruction of the Canaanites. The Canaanites with their infant sacrifices their sexual perversions, their disrespect for parents, their rejection of all human compassion and kindness. Phineas's action may be stunning to us, yet it's no more stunning than the sentence pronounced in Exodus 32 after the debauchery, after the debacle uh, while Moses was on Sinai. It may be scandalous to us, but it's no more scandalous than the immediate deaths of Nadab and Abihu in Leviticus 10, or Uzzah in 2 Samuel 6, or, or those who approach the presence of God in an unclean state as stipulated in the Torah. In fact, the passage may be utterly shocking to us. But certainly, it's no more shocking than the biblical doctrine of hell, which appears in its strongest form in the New Testament, not the Old Testament, and on the lips of Jesus more than on those of any other biblical character. We continue. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, the son of Aaron the priest, has turned back my wrath from the children of Israel, because he was zealous with my zeal among them, so that I did not consume the children of Israel in my zeal. Therefore, say, Behold, I give to him my covenant of peace, and it shall be to him and his descendants after him a covenant of an everlasting priesthood. Because he was zealous for his God and made atonement, made atonement for the children of Israel. Now, what is going on here? Let, let me explain something. When he kills, in a sense, sacrifices this, uh, this immoral, flagrantly immoral couple, he stems the plague. Unholiness, unrighteousness, gross sin in the people of God has serious consequences. It's just in the nature of moral reality. It's just in the nature of, of God. When this kind of stuff is going on, especially among leaders, God's wrath breaks out as a matter of course. Automatically, the plague has already started. The unrighteous behavior of this couple affected the whole community. And thousands are dying if Phineas hadn't taken his extreme Measure taken the javelin and gone into the shrine, into the tent, then even more would have died. And so in that respect, he made atonement for the children of Israel. Now here's the, the most important insight of the lesson. We read about his zeal. We read about his zealous quality. Did you know that jealousy is another way 
to render this word. In fact, jealousy and zeal are closely connected. In fact, it's the same word. In your Greek New Testament, zelos is the word for zeal or jealousy. In the Old Testament, kina is the word for zeal or ardor or jealousy. It's the same thing. You say, well, wait a minute. Zeal is a good thing. That's high energy. Uh, jealousy, that's a sin. That's a bad thing. No, that's not true. Not necessarily so. Firstly, there's a context to different actions and attitudes. Hate is a good thing. Love is bad. Did you misspeak, Douglas? Well, if we love sin, that's bad. If we hate what's righteous, that's bad. We need to hate what's evil. We need to love what is good. There is a, an evil jealousy, but there's also a righteous jealousy. Jealousy has to do with possession. In the sinful form, it's when we're unwilling to share something of ours with someone else. Whether it's our money, our possessions, our wife, or our time, uh, we, we can be jealous in a sense. But jealous and zealous are related. In fact, in some Bibles, as I, I'm translated when I speak all over the world, some Bibles it's exactly the same word even in the translation language. Well, what is jealousy? Jealousy is zeal. Well, what is real zeal then? Zeal is being jealous for the honor of God. We're deeply offended, not because we might lose something, but because God's honor is being compromised. This is the nature of true zeal. Zeal is not high energy, happy clappy participation in religious meetings. Zeal, biblically, is a fierce jealous regard for the things of God. It's an intense, white-hot, passionate concern for what is right. And by the way, if you would like to, to learn more uh, from the original Hebrew Old Testament or Greek New Testament, at the other website, please uh, search Linguistic Insights. You'll find a lot. As a premium subscriber, of course, you have unlimited access to the main website. And that's open to everyone anyway, with many uh, new, new pages added each week. But the Linguistic Insight section contains many things. And some of these insights, I think, are very uh, helpful, very important. So zeal is not just an energy. Zeal has to do with what is most important to us. Often, the brother or sister with the biggest smile, the loudest voice, or the most energetic worship participation can be singled out as being zealous. What a positive attitude. And then a week later or a month later, that person's gone. <laughs> They've come to the brink of utter ruin in the midst of the assembly. They faked it. They faked us all out. Uh, Proverbs 5.14 you see, it's not what's in, in the outer person that is real zeal. What's real zeal is in the inside. Romans twelve eleven says we are supposed to keep our spiritual fervor, our heat, our ardor, our ardor, serving the Lord. Well, in what ways are we supposed to have zeal? Well, I think Paul illustrates this very well in some things he says in his letter to the Colossians. I won't read the passages, but let me refer to one in each. Uh, let me actually refer to four different verses. Chapter 1 and 2. In fellowship, Colossians 1, 28 to 1. Paul shares about how 
eager he is to proclaim Christ, not only to those he knows, but to to those he doesn't know. His concern is that Christ is proclaimed, that everyone is directed to Christ, that we all become mature, we become like Jesus. Is that my attitude in a fellowship? Am I just working on my to-do list or staying the minimum time before I can get home? Or am I actually on the lookout? Do I have a plan? Do I have a strategy to try to help other people spiritually? Another area of zeal is, is personal growth. The transformation that comes as a result of our death and resurrection in baptism. And this is in Colossians 3.1 and following. A third important area of zeal is knowing the will of God. In fact, letting the word of Christ dwell in us richly. Colossians 3.16. Do we have that passion to really put the word of God into our hearts? And the fourth area, outreach. In Colossians 4, I believe it's verse 2 to 6. We're using our opportunities. We're realizing that we are salt. We are light. We have people uh, in our path that the Lord puts there. And we need to open our mouths and overcome whatever obstacle or fear or inconvenience may stop us and actually connect with outsiders. This is so important if we're going to be men and women who grow. Well, now I'm illustrating what zeal is. And I think you can see that much of zeal is not even public. It's private. It's not what we do in front of a group or when someone's taking notes. But it's what we do on our own. It's our our daily spiritual habits. It's how we interact with others, not just in church fellowship, but on a daily basis. This is what real zeal is. Zeal means it's almost like an anger. We are so intent, so focused on the honor and glory of God. And we not only expect ourselves to follow, but we want others to. And if they claim to be Christians, we have a high expectation. This is what zeal is. We are bothered when people are not following the Lord. We're bothered. It's like in Psalm 119. Streams of tears pour from my eyes because your law is being disobeyed. This is the idea. Well, let's read the end of the passage. Now, the name of the Israelite who was killed, who was killed with the Midianite woman, was Zimri, the son of Salu, a leader of a father's house among the Simeonites. And the name of the Midianite woman who was killed was Cosbi, the daughter of Zur. He was head of the people of a father's house in Midian. So we see this alliance is between a Midianite and an Israelite. Some people think they're above the law. And this couple are memorialized. Their names appear in the Bible. I'm not an honor in any way. The passage also highlights the terrible things that happen when there's intermarriage, when there's relationship, romantic relationship between someone who's of the people of God and someone who's outside. What does Moses do? Uh, We don't uh, specifically read about the execution of all the leaders who are involved in this. Maybe uh, some commentators suggest he diluted God's sentence a bit. It would be hard to expect the tribal leaders to take the lead in executing themselves. Okay, I turn myself in. Let me stone myself to death. Let me hang myself. But something's going on here. And and if you look at that parallel passage back in Exodus 32 where the Levites take the sword and kill the 3,000, you'll see um, there's a deliberate echo. There's a reference back to that. But 
in this case, the hero is not even Moses. The hero is Phineas, who takes a stand. Under Moses' very nose, Zimri shows contempt for the covenant. And the sentence apparently pronounced against his own father, if his father was one of the uh, leaders who, who got involved in the apostasy. So thank God for Phineas, who took a stand. Well, how, what do we conclude in this passage? What do we conclude? Well, first, yes, there are differences between the covenants. The old covenant is much more physical than the new covenant. In the church, of course, we have no authority to punish with the spear or sword. The medieval church was deeply mistaken and in violation of the teaching of the Lord. However, we are to be indignant about sin. And there are so many New Testament passages to consider, like Matthew 5, 1 Corinthians 5, 2 Thessalonians 3, Hebrews 13, Revelation 21. These are all of the notes. And so I think we need to ask some questions to ourselves. Am I like Phineas? Or does his behavior seem unreasonable to me, uh, even after restudying the passage? Am I like Phineas, or do I condone sin? Do I speak up? Am I like Phineas, or do I uphold a righteous standard of uh, church discipline? I should say, or do I fail to uphold a righteous standard of church discipline? Because that's certainly what Phineas did. Am I like Phineas, or am I politically correct? Am I like Phineas, or have I so bought into the, quote, values of the world? What a contradiction, since the world values what's detestable in God's sight. Have I so bought into the values of the world that I'm hardly bothered by what I see anymore? And if, am I, if I'm a leader, am I like Phineas? There's no excuse for intolerance, insensitivity, failure to listen, investigate, empathize, or truly love others. But do I have real zeal? Am I like Phineas? That is the question. Well, in the advanced section, you'll, you'll read the, the comment that appears in uh, Psalm 106. Um, you'll, you'll see that he's referred to a couple times in the Old Testament Apocrypha. In the children's section, ideas for children's devotional, key verses for those of you who are trying to familiarize yourself with the, uh, you know, the, the key events in, in the life of the character. But as always, the most important part is, is what we learn about God. So let me, let me end with that. First, God's jealousy, which is sinless, is white hot, holy, and cannot be compromised. Second, he punishes sin Third, God detests illicit yoking, yoking ourselves with unbelievers. And fourth, the Lord commends those who stand up for his righteousness. Thank you for listening to this podcast. The next one will be on Joshua. We hope you enjoyed Douglas's teaching on Phineas. For additional notes and resources, be sure to check out Douglas's website in the show notes. The website has hundreds of articles, podcasts, and videos for you to access for free. You can also become a premium subscriber and gain access to thousands of online resources from Douglas's teaching ministry. Thanks again for listening.